and welcome back to Story Collider's Stories of COVID-19. I'm your host, Artistic Director Erin Barker, and today we're bringing you part two of our episode on adaptation. If you missed part one, we shared a story from the amazing Fiona Calvert and spoke with psychologist Kevin Chapman about how we can adapt to protect our mental health during this time. Highly recommend checking it out. But for now, we have two more stories for you on the theme of adaptation. Our next story comes from best-selling author and celebrated storyteller Matthew Dix. It was recorded in his home office in Connecticut. I'm standing at the end of my driveway. I'm staring at a text message on my phone. Except it's not a text message from a human being. It's a text message from a machine. It's actually a text message from my phone to my phone. It reads, Warning. Possible thunderstorms in the area in 20 minutes. It comes from an app called My Radar. It's an app that's used by golfers and cyclists and hikers, people who need to know when the weather is going to suddenly change. I have a complex relationship with this app based upon its inability to be certain about anything. Every forecast is attached to the word possible, meaning that I can sort of overlay my own interpretation onto the forecast based upon what I need in a particular moment. So if it's midnight and my wife and I are watching a horror movie and I get an alert that says possible thunderstorm in the next 15 minutes, I assume of course it's going to be a thunderstorm because if it starts to lightning and thunder, it'll enhance our viewing pleasure. But if I'm on the 17th hole of the golf course, having the round of my life, and the app warns me that a thunderstorm or even a tornado might strike in the next three minutes, I assume that it's only possible, but probably not going to happen. I need to finish this round. And up until this point in my life, the app and I have been copacetic. It's always worked out. It seems like whatever interpretation I decide to have, the universe seems to apply that interpretation, and everything works out well. And I need that to happen today. I need there to be no thunderstorms today. Because today is day 74 of the pandemic. It's day 74 of lockdown. It is day 74 of the same four people living in the same house, staring at the same four walls. And I just can't take it anymore. Every day is like the last and nothing ever changes. Noontime rolls around and my children say, can we have lunch? And I think, again? We're going to do lunch again? We're going to just make lunch every day now? I'm going to do this for you forever? I know there were times before the coronavirus when I did make lunch for my children, but there were also cafeteria workers and restaurant workers and relatives who would occasionally prepare meals for these people. But it's just me now every day. And the things they eat are always the same. It's chicken nuggets or grilled cheese. It's just lunch for the rest of my life with these people. And I need something different. I need there to be no thunderstorm today because today, now, I'm going on a bike ride. It is the one moment every day when I get to see new things in the world. And I don't need much. I can discover a previously undiscovered cul-de-sac three miles from my home. And that is joyous. I will ride around that circle. I'll stare at each of the houses. I'll look at the flower beds. I'll look at their mailbox. Anything to see something new. A few weeks ago, I rode my bike behind a grocery store and I saw these four guys unloading a truck 
and I just stopped and watched. It was better than anything that was on Netflix because it was different than all the stuff I had been watching. So I just stared at these men doing their jobs, fascinated. A couple weeks ago, I was riding behind my son's elementary school when I noticed on the far corner of the soccer field next to the porta potty, there were two cases of Coors Light stacked up against each other. So I rode over to the porta potty to figure out what the hell was going on. And as I got close, the door to the porta potty flew open and a man stepped out. He looked at me and he smiled. And I smiled back, sort of that recognition that, oh, you exist. Like there's other people in the world besides me. And we nodded at each other. And then he bent over, picked up the cases of Coors Light, and he just started walking down the path. It was nothing. It was just a man and a porta potty and Coors Light. But in the land of coronavirus, it was amazing. I rode home. I told my wife about the porta potty and the man and the Coors Light. I called my friends. It was the most exciting thing that had happened to me in days. And so there can be no thunderstorms on this day. I need this bike ride to work for me. And it's sunny. There is not a cloud in the sky. The app is wrong. I am going for my ride. So I get on my bike and I head down my street. I turn right onto Main Street. As I do, the horizon sort of opens up for me and I can see to the west. I can see thunderheads, dark, ominous clouds. The app has the forecast right, but the timing wrong because they are way far away. It's going to take a long time before this storm ever gets to me. But just to sort of hedge my bets, when I get to the next intersection, I shift to the other side of the road. I decide to put an extra 18 feet between me and the thunderstorm just in case something happens. But it turns out the app was wrong. There were no thunderstorms in the next 20 minutes. The thunderstorm arrives in 16 minutes. And when that thunderstorm arrives, it arrives as if it had been communicating with the app the whole time. The app was saying to the thunderstorm, look, I told this guy that you were coming and he ignored all of my warnings, so let him have it. Because this thunderstorm lets me have it. There is no tuft of wind and drizzle and light rain. It is just an instantaneous hellscape. It is sheets of rain and thunder and legitimate lightning that lights up the sky. It is terrifying. It is one of the worst thunderstorms I have ever seen in my life. And I'm on a bike two miles from my house as it's happening. When I turn and I start to head for home, I can't even look up. The rain is coming down so hard, I need to put my head down and hope I won't run into anything. When I finally get home, I sort of stumble into the house. I go upstairs to take a shower. It doesn't really make any sense. I'm already soaked, but somehow getting the rainwater off and replacing it with pipe water feels right. And so I take my shower, and when I'm done, I step out, and I realize something has changed. It's very strange. I walk into my bedroom, look out the window, and the sky is blue again. The sun is out again. As quickly as it came, the thunderstorm is now gone. So I look at my phone again. I see that I have 30 minutes before I have to get back to work. So I call down to my wife and say I'm going to finish my ride. And so I get back on my bike. I head out. I'm about a mile from my house when the ice starts to fall from the sky. It's crazy. Enormous fist 
sized chunks of ice start falling from the sky on top of me. The sky is blue. The sun is out. There is one black cloud in the sky. It is over my head and it is dumping ice onto the world. So much so that the lawns are turning white. The cars on the road are starting to pull over because they can't drive through this hail. I'm getting pelted, so I dive beneath a pine tree. I hug the tree. I hug the trunk of the tree and keep my head down in hopes of not getting hurt. There's a woman on the side of the road. She stopped her car sort of across the lawn from where I am, maybe 20 feet from me. She rolls down her window and she shouts, Are you okay? I say yes, but I mean, what would happen if I wasn't? I can't get in her car. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're all sort of trapped together, but alone. So I hug this tree. I take out my phone again. I text to my wife. I say, honey, you're not going to believe this. Now it's hailing. She texts back to me and says, no, I believe it because it's hailing here too. It's 10 minutes under that tree as the ice falls from the sky. And when it finally ends, the world is white. I decide that this is enough. I'm going home. This is the end of my bike ride. So I get back on my bike. I head down the street and I take a left. I head up a hill heading towards home. When I see at the top of the hill, stretching from horizon to horizon, a rainbow, this enormous, colorful, beautiful rainbow. The next day, I'm playing socially distant golf with my buddies, which turns out to be very easy for me based upon the way that I play. My friends hit their balls far and straight, and I am always off to the right and in the woods. I never come close to any of them. But when we finally get together on that first green and begin putting, I tell my friend Jeff what happened yesterday. I tell him about the thunder and the lightning and the hail and then the rainbow. And he says, I get it, I get it. He says, the thunder and the lightning and the hail, they all made the rainbow worth it, right? And I say, no. I say, rainbows suck. And they do. Rainbows are a dime a dozen. I've probably seen 500 rainbows over the course of my life and forgotten almost all of them. Rainbows are meaningless. But yesterday, while I was on my bike, in the middle of an otherwise sunny day, enormous chunks of ice fell from the sky, and I dove under a pine tree to save my life. And in the land of coronavirus, when days bleed into days, and every day seems like the last, that hailstorm was something. I got to have a day in my life that I will never forget for the rest of my life. And in the midst of this pandemic, those days are hard to come by. Unless there has been illness, or job loss, or God forbid death, every day is just like the last. And so on that day, I got hit by ice. I hid under a pine tree. And I experienced a moment that was different than anything I have ever had before. And in the land of coronavirus, different, it turns out, is almost always better. Thank you.
That was Matthew Dix. Matt is an award-winning elementary school teacher, columnist, and internationally best-selling author of several novels, including Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend and 21 Truths About Love, as well as the nonfiction title Storyworthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. At StoryQuieter, we refer to Storyworthy as the Storytelling Bible. So if you're interested in storytelling, check it out. Matt is a 49-time Moth Story Slam and six-time Grand Slam champion whose stories have been featured on the Moth Radio Hour and This American Life, so he knows what he's talking about. He's also the founder of Speak Up, a Hartford-based storytelling organization, which also has a podcast, by the way. Before we move on to our final story of adaptation, I just want to remind everyone that we are currently searching for stories for our next series on COVID-19. So if you have a story about how the pandemic has affected you in a big or small way, get in touch. You can send your story pitches to stories at storyquieter.org, or you can pitch through the form on our website. Either way, we'd love to hear from you. You could be a part of our next series. We found so many wonderful stories from this first series through our pitches. Our last story on the theme of adaptation is from veterinarian Lauren Adelman. This story was recorded at her home in British Columbia. I want to tell you about my patient Freya, an eight-year-old Great Dane whose kidney disease I had been treating for several months. Freya had already survived cancer and had been through at least two major surgeries before she even landed in my care. Last year, Freya acutely decompensated. She wasn't eating, she could barely get up, and her dads brought her into the hospital knowing that after months of fighting, it was finally time to say goodbye. When they arrived, they were taken to our dedicated comfort room. Picture a dimly lit, private, quiet, cozy space with couches and blankets where the owners can spend their last remaining moments with their pet. I went in and sat down on the ground next to them and went through the entire process of euthanasia. While I talk to them, I'm comforting them by holding their hands and tears are already filling my eyes. I tell them to take as much time as they need and that there's no rush. There's a phone inside the room they can use to call us when they are ready. After about 45 minutes, I got the call. I went back in. I sat down next to them. I gave Freya the injections one after the other, listened to her heart, which was no longer beating. I put my stethoscope down and touched both of them, letting them know that she was gone. I cried with them, knowing that I did the best thing I could for her, but also sad that there wasn't more I could offer to keep her here longer. I leaned forward and gave her a kiss, staying with her body while her owners left. I've been through the same process with hundreds of other patients over the past eight years. Unfortunately, death and euthanasia are an inherent part of my job as a veterinarian. Sometimes hospitalized patients rapidly decline and and pass naturally, but in the vast majority of cases, humane euthanasia is a decision that needs to be made. I always tell my owners there's a reason we call it humane euthanasia, and that's because it allows their pet to pass peacefully with as minimal suffering as possible. Sometimes it's the best thing we can do for our pets, or as most people consider them, our children. I pride myself on being a compassionate veterinarian, and I really think end of life is one of those areas where we as vets can make the most impact. Euthanasia is a deeply emotional experience that I feel so privileged to share with my clients. Then the pandemic hit. 
As an essential worker, I continued with my day-to-day grind. And although during the first couple of weeks, it was pretty quiet as people were staying home and, and scared, to be honest, since April, there's been an exponential rise in the number of cases veterinarians are seeing. More and more people are adopting pets and are staying home with their animals. I'm overworked and exhausted. We've also had to make changes and adapt like many other people. And one of the most significant changes we have taken is to not allow owners into the building. All my patients are handed over using a contact-free system at the door, and any subsequent communication I do with them is either over the phone or on Zoom. And I know you might be thinking, wow, that's every vet's dream to deal with the animals and not the humans, right? And while sometimes I do admit this may be the case, the vast majority of the time I honestly hate it. Hands down, the most challenging aspect of the pandemic for me has been how it affects the process of humane euthanasia. In May, I had a five-month-old bulldog hospitalized named Leahy, and he had been hospitalized for the previous week for kidney failure, secondary to a condition called renal dysplasia, where the kidneys don't form properly. I had never met the owner, as this was a new case that had been transferred directly to me from the emergency service. I spoke to her at least twice a day for the week prior, but never met her in person. She sounded young, maybe in her 20s or 30s like me, and was extremely committed to Leahy's care. If I ever suggested any diagnostics, she was always quick to consent. I grew really attached to Leahy during the week he was hospitalized, giving him extra TLC, knowing that his mom couldn't come visit him as we would normally allow. Unfortunately, despite my best efforts to try and save him, Leahy could not overcome his illness. His kidney values continued to climb. He was nauseous, vomiting, refusing food, and he was weak and lethargic. It was clear his quality of life was suffering, and the only thing I could do to help him was to end his suffering. The owner was obviously devastated, but agreed that it was time. She arrived about an hour later with her boyfriend and another male friend. Because the comfort room is inside the hospital, We've created this temporary tent outside where euthanasias are now performed. It's located in this patch of grass in the back where we typically walk our dogs when they're hospitalized. And we've done our best to make it as private as and comforting as possible. There's blankets, there's chairs in there, but at the end of the day, it's really just a sterile looking white tent outside that we have to use no matter what the weather is. My assistant went out, donned in full PPE, She went to meet them. She took them around back and she went over all the logistics, including care of remains and collected payment ahead of time. When all this was done, I myself got into full PPE and that included a gown, gloves, mask, and goggles. And I went to the ICU to pick up Leahy and walked him outside to the tent. This was the first time I was meeting his family and this was the first time they were seeing their dog in over a week. I went inside, noting that all three of them already had puffy eyes, and the primary owner, the woman who I'd been talking to for the past week, already had tears streaming down her face. She was sitting in one of the chairs, and the other two men were standing. I felt uncomfortable. I couldn't sit on the ground with them like I usually would. I couldn't hug her. I couldn't tell her how sorry I was. I stood in the middle of the tent two meters away from them, and explained the euthanasia process as I had so many times before. Leahy was sitting on a metal gurney covered with blankets about halfway between us. We weren't even at eye level. It felt cold, 
like I was there to provide a service, but not experience it with them. Since there was no phone for them to call me inside the tent, time was limited. I told them I would give them a few minutes and would be waiting outside the tent when they were ready. I stood outside on the grass listening to their sobs and waited. I felt awkward, like I was invading their private moment but couldn't walk away. It felt wrong not to give them all the time in the world to say goodbye. After about 10 minutes, they unzipped the tent and told me they were ready. I went back inside. I could barely see a thing because my glasses were scratched shit and kept fogging up. I grabbed the two syringes and we positioned Leahy so that I could give the injections without being too close to the owners. I began injecting the first and then the second syringe. I couldn't touch or comfort the owners as I normally would have. It felt sterile and it felt wrong. I ripped off my glasses, which was technically against protocol because at the very least, I wanted to be able to look her in the eyes. She looked back. I told her she was making the right decision and it was going to be okay. We were helping him. I hope she took comfort in that. After the euthanasia, I stepped back to create more distance between us. I could not hug them or hold their hands. They exited the tent and the female owner just fell to the ground and stopped. I told her how sorry I was and that she should know she did everything possible to save him and he was so lucky to have her as a mom. But my words didn't feel the same. I stayed in the tent with Leahy's body and I waited until she had left the premise. That night I went home and cried. I felt like I had failed as a veterinarian in my inability to comfort and support this family as I would usually do. This was not what I had signed up for. I knew I took the necessary precautions, but that didn't make it any easier, and it wasn't fair that this is what was expected of me right now. Since this first experience, I have performed several more euthanasias in the tent. It's still not ideal, but I have adapted. I use a face shield now instead of glasses, which are easier to see through and they don't fog up. I've grown accustomed to a new way of life as a veterinarian. I've realized that I, I'm doing the best I can given the circumstance, and I really am still doing what matters most, which is providing my patients with the most humane passing possible and being for, there for the owners in the best way that I can. If I've learned anything from this pandemic, it's how much I value the bond and relationship that I get to create with my owners. I may have gone into this profession for my love of animals, but I think at the end of the day, I love my owners too, and I long for the day when I can hug them again. That was Lauren Adelman. Lauren was raised in Calgary, Alberta, where she completed her Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree. She then went on to complete a residency in small animal internal medicine at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. She currently practices as an internal medicine specialist at Canada West Veterinary Specialists in Vancouver, British Columbia. The Story Collider is so grateful to Matt and Lauren for sharing their stories. Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast series was produced by me, Aaron Barker, with assistance from Story Collider's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board, our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and our new Interim Executive Director Leslie Griesbach-Schultz without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in the second part of this episode were produced by me, Aaron Barker, and Josh Silberg, respectively. The theme music is by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. 
Stay tuned for our next episode, Decisions, on Friday. Until then, this is Story Collider signing off. Stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, love each other. Thanks for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.